right, good morning, Three Circle, all of our campuses joining us online right now, and uh, online, we are uh, excited to be together to kick off this new series on hymns. We're going to look at the hymns for a little while, and you know, it's funny, at Three Circle, I know a lot of people go, man, it's a contemporary church, and Three Circle, reaching the next generation, and all those things, I guess some of those things can be true, but if you're here long, you'll see that we are very old school, too, like, we got a lot of old school in us, like, we are a church, there was, it's this weird time in history, and and uh, I've been around ministry long enough, there was a time where churches were like, let's do everything we can, so it's almost like we don't, we're not really churchy anymore, and I'm like, well, I it's kind of, you know, we're a church, you know what I'm saying? So we do churchy stuff, and we use churchy language, and we are a church. So I don't think you're surprised by that when you came in the parking lot, right? You knew what you were getting into, I guess. And so, yeah, there's some old school to us, and, and, and it's absolutely appropriate that there would be because the church has 2,000 years of really rich history. And so we're going to do a hymn series for a lot of reasons. The number one reason, as always, is all we're going to do is use these beautiful songs of our faith to springboard us into biblical truth. So we're going to preach and teach the Bible. That's what we're going to do because these songs that we've chosen are all built on truth from the Bible. And we're going to go right to the scriptures that inspired the songs. But also, I want you to feel connected to the fact that we have a 2,000-year history for the church. We are not the first kids on the block. So I think sometimes we think we're the only group of Christians to ever deal with cultural issues. And the early church would have something to say about that if that's what you believe. Like, we're not the first ones to deal with stuff. We're not the first ones to write great songs. We're, you know, and what's interesting is our songs tend to not last as long as these, you know. I remember when I was in college, the, the, the big, big song that came out when I was in college for churches and ministries was Shout to the Lord. It was this beautiful song, right? And it's been a long time, though, since I've heard Shout to the Lord in a church. And it's a great song. But I hadn't heard it in a while. But like the song that you just heard is being done all over the world all the time. It's like these songs stuck. They had some glue to them. I think one of the reasons is they're rich theology. And so we're going to look at these songs and see that, hey, we are a part of this beautiful thing called the church. And we've had these songs that have stuck with us for a long time. And today we're looking at Great is Thy Faithfulness. How many of you, this is one of your songs. You love this song. Isn't that a great song? Beautiful truth, right? Interestingly enough, this is not one of the older hymns. Although it sounds like it could have been sung for a thousand years, it's actually not as old as some of the other hymns. But it is certainly uh, one of the great songs of our faith. A man by the name of Thomas Chisholm wrote this song. Now, he was born in 1866, right after the Civil War. He became a Christian in his early 20s. And in his early 20s, he becomes a Christian, and he gets called to ministry. But one thing that was tough for him is they had bad health issues. He had really bad health issues. And it caused him to not be able to do ministry on the same level that other people could. And he always thought, my reach of my ministry is not going to go that far. And, and I think it's awesome that God was, had plans, that his ministry would go far beyond anything he'd ever imagined. Because one of, the, one of the little gifts that God had given him is he could write poetry. He was a poet. He wrote tons of poetry, and one day he was reading the book of Lamentations, and he comes across this beautiful place in the scriptures uh, in Lamentations that inspired a poem that he wrote called Great is Thy Faithfulness, based on Lamentations. And he didn't have any music for it, but he thought, I think this one's strong. He called his buddy William, and he said, hey, can you, well, he called him, it was 1800, so he rode his horse over to William's house, knocked on the door, hey, William. You tinker around on the piano. Can you come up with something for this? William did, and born was greatest thy faithfulness. 
But it still wasn't well known in the church until a college student heard it for the first time. His name was Billy, Billy Graham. Billy Graham heard Greatest Thy Faithfulness, and he said, that's my favorite song. That's, that's a great song. When he began his ministry, Billy Graham looked at his buddy, George Beverly Shea. Greatest Thy right? And, uh, you know, that big, beautiful voice of his. That was my impression. I hope you appreciated it. I thought it was quality. Uh, maybe you don't have an appreciation for the artistry that you just experienced, but, you know, it's the best I got. And uh, George Beverly Shea loved it as well, and so it became ubiquitous at all the Billy Graham Crusades, and that song became one of the great songs of our faith. And so today, we're not here to talk about Greatest Thy Faithfulness, the song. We're here to talk about the Word of God that inspired such a beautiful song that we can sing to this day confidently. And here's what's interesting. It was words from the Book of Lamentations that produced that song. That song is a song about hope. It's a song about the goodness of God. And yet it was written in Lamentations. Let me tell you why that doesn't make sense. Because Lamentations is the saddest book in the Bible. That's why it's called Lamentations. Because the root word of Lamentations is lament. And lament is sad. In fact, it's a funeral. Lamentations, the book of Lamentations, is a funeral. In fact, it can be broken into five what we would call funeral dirges. A dirge is a sad song. And the guy who wrote it was a sad guy. His name was Jeremiah. We call him the weeping prophet. He's sad. And he had reason to be. And he is writing a funeral. When he wrote Lamentations, it was a funeral. Do you know who it was for? The city of Jerusalem. He wrote a funeral for the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because the city of Jerusalem was being burned to the ground. Destroyed. Its walls, its temples, its buildings. By the Babylonians. And Jeremiah had warned the people of God, if you don't live for God, God will discipline you like any good dad will. And they didn't listen, so the day came. And they never thought it would be as harsh and swift and total, the judgment of God, as it was. The Babylonians came in and took most of the population off to Babylon to slavery. And Jeremiah writes Lamentations, a funeral for the city of God, Jerusalem. But in the middle of his funeral, like any good preacher does, because funerals are sad and there's no way around it. Someone's died. And I've had to do a lot of funerals. And I like to tell people that I know, don't make it hard for me to preach a good funeral for you, man. Okay, you know what I'm saying? Like, live in such a way that I can come say good things about you instead of having to make a bunch of stuff up and get real creative. You know what I mean? Well, he, uh, he made a good pot of gumbo. You know what I mean? It's like, whew, reaching here. I really, I've sat down with people and I'm like, all right, tell me about your dad. Tell me like five good things about your dad. And they're going, I don't know, you want, looking around, you got, huh. They sit there and I'm like, <laughs> then once somebody will go, well, I remember that time he taught me to change a tire. Got it. I'm right. Now I'm really reaching. Come on. You got anything else guys? Well, uh, man, he, you know what? He barbecued. He was good with the grill. Good bar. Boom. So then I got to come up and preach and go, man, boy, this man could barbecue. You know what I mean? Don't live a life like that and make me have to do that. Anyway, that's not part of this sermon. That's for free. All that's for free. <laughs> now, he, he's, given a, he's given a funeral, 
And in the middle of it, like any good funeral service, there's got to be hope. And as Christians, we do have hope, right? We can preach funeral services and go, this person's dead, but there's hope. And if they're a Christian, my gosh, they're, they're better off than we are now. And there's all this hope. Well, in the middle of the funeral service for Jerusalem, Jeremiah writes these words that produced for us one of our great hymns, Greatest Thy Faithfulness. And here's what he wrote. In the middle of those five funeral dirges, he says these words. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Now, right out of the gate, we get a powerful sentence. God's love is never ending, and it's steadfast. That's good news that we can celebrate. God's love is not like our human love. He's not moody. Y'all are all moody, and I am too. Some days I'm like all on fire and just loving people, and then other days I'm just, yeah just like you are. God never is like that. He's steady. Aren't you thankful our God is steadfast in his love? He's not moody. He doesn't change. I'm so grateful for that. Then it says his mercies, and the best way to understand mercies, I want you, I want you to see what this is doing, is spiritual energy. I think it's one of the great ways to define what it's saying here, because that's an ambiguous word. What does it mean? It means his goodness and grace and spiritual provision in our lives. His mercies never come to an end. You're never going to expend them. You ne- they don't run out, okay? Verse 23, they are new every morning. Now, that tells you how he brings you spiritual energy every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. And if you mistakenly believe when the Bible says to wait on God, it means just sit around and do nothing. No, that's not what it means. By the way, when I vacation, I'm a fidgety guy. So I can't, like you ask me to lay still in the sun all day long, that will, dry, that will not be good for me. I got about 10 minutes of that in me. I'm an active relaxer. Anyone else like that? Got to do something to relax. Now, for those of you who can lay around all day, that's a gift and I... Tip my hat to you and your relaxation abilities. Well, I want you to know when the Bible says wait on God, it is active waiting. And here's why. Look what it says. The Lord is good to those who wait on him, to the soul who seeks him. Watch this. Waiting on God involves seeking him. It's an active waiting. Okay, And then it says this. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Man, this is in the middle. Like, it doesn't even fit in Lamentations, really. It's like sad, sad, sad. But in the middle of all that wreckage, in the middle of people being marched off, in the middle of families being torn apart, death, blood in the streets, and everything's burning down, you can still smell the smoke. Jeremiah says, as bad as this is, God's still faithful God's still who he says he is. God still loves us. His love does not end just because all of this has been so bad. And great is his faithfulness. Now, that's good preaching, isn't it? Jeremiah's preaching in the middle of a nightmare. Now, what do we learn from this about God? What do we learn about this, about our walk with him and how we live the Christian life? Well, first of all, knowing and trusting in God's character gives us hope. That's what he's trying to do. Those people had no hope in that moment. He's trying to bring them back to hope when our circumstances look hopeless. The thing you must do when life and circumstances are hopeless is look to the character of God. 
and who he is. Because you're going to have to remember who he is. And if you were the Jerusalem residents when all this went down, you may start questioning who God is. You may think, I don't, I don't know what God's up to right now. You may begin to wonder if he's really good, if he really cares. And Jeremiah is reminding them that your circumstances do not define his character. In fact, it's his character that's going to bring you hope in the middle of horrific circumstances. The next thing we see here that he's trying to get them to do is to not be consumed by their situation. And we say this a lot at Three Circle, and I want it to be something we continue to hang our spiritual hats on. Believers can be concerned without being consumed. It is one of our distinctives. It's something that sets us apart in this world. Because we live in a world with, full of things, and it always has been, that concern us. And they should. For you to not be concerned about the world around you means you're the ostrich sticking your head in the ground, right? In the middle of the desert. You just go, oh, it's just... And what I love about the Bible is the Bible is not escapism. If you want an escape, go watch a romantic comedy. That's escape. No one's ever won an Oscar for a romantic comedy. The actors that do them will tell you, we keep them light, they're just supposed to be fun. Like, we know it's not real life. You know? I mean, you go watch Matthew McConaughey and Kate Hudson in their little, little movie that they do, and you realize they get mad at each other and all that, but in the end, they're going to ride off on a motorcycle with Keith Urban singing a song in the background. That's not real life. That's not real. You know it's not real. Keith Evans never showed up in my kitchen when me and my wife were having a little fight to help us through it. So if you want to escape, that's it. This is not escapism. This is not Jeremiah going, you guys, I know the city's burning down, but it's all good. No, no, no. He doesn't insult us that way. No, instead he says, yes, it's bad. And we're going to rightly lament how bad it is. We are concerned but we are not consumed. They can't burn enough cities to consume the people of God. No circumstance stops God's character and his consistency. That's what he's saying. And sometimes it's good for us to remember. That's why these hymns shove us into the history of the church to remember we're not the first kids on the block. I'm convinced I'm going to get to heaven and Paul and Peter are going to walk over to me and go, oh, Pastor Chris, did someone insult you on Facebook and hurt your feelings? <laughs> like the things I get bothered by. Oh, did someone say something bad about you on Twitter? Did it hurt your feelings? Because Paul's going to be like, because the axe didn't feel good when Nero had it swinging at my head. And Peter's going to say, when they crucified me upside down, that wasn't fun either. I think they're going to look at me and go, you were a little bit of a whiny baby, bud. You were not the only one ever that got a little trouble in the Christian life. And I'm just going to have to go, got me there, guys, you know? Because sometimes I think we think we're the only ones to deal with cultural hardships and we're the only ones to deal with the world being tough and we're the only ones to deal with tough circumstances. And this is why I think this is good for us to remember that the people of God way back then were dealing with really hard things and having to learn to trust God every day. But here's the good news. Jeremiah is teaching those people in that ancient world that they can trust God. And folks, we can trust him today. The same way they could trust him then. We can trust him today. So, 
we need to be reminded that our circumstances change, but his character is consistent. That's hard. It is hard for us to wrap our mind around consistent character the way God displays consistent character. He is consistent because we're also inconsistent, right? I mean, can we just be honest? How many of you frustrate yourselves with your lack of ability to be consistent? <laughs> Last week, man, I had a really, you ever had those weeks where you ate really, really good? I was taking care of the temple last week. A lot of apples and high, high protein. Everything was good. I, I had said no to all the bad things last week. And then yesterday morning, my wife made sausage biscuit gravy. You know what I mean? The gravy and you put it over the biscuits. And, uh, oh man, it did not work out well. It didn't work out well. I didn't say no. I didn't just say yes. I said yes twice. You know what I'm saying? Inconsistent. And then I felt bad or I moved a little slower the rest of the day. You know what I mean? I don't know if you know. Sasha's business and gravy are not exactly an energy producing thing. How many of you get frustrated by your own lack of consistency sometimes? And so since we're so inconsistent even with one another, it's hard for us to see that God is consistent. Like he does not change. He's not going to change. And you can depend on him. And that, according to Jeremiah, is our source of hope. Not that we somehow can work ourselves up to consistency or work ourselves up to be bigger than the moment, bigger than the giants we're facing. Like I grew up with, right? You're, you're got a Goliath, but you're bigger than Goliath. No, I'm not. Goliath will stomp me like a bug. But Jesus is bigger than my giants. And God's character is greater than my circumstances. And so Jeremiah rightly points us not inward, not to whatever strength we have inside. No, no, no. He points us straight at the character of God. It's his mercy that's new every morning. It's his character that's consistent and never changing. It's his power that can overcome. And so today in a modern world, we need to hear this ancient message that produced that beautiful song. And then we see something else. How does God's spiritual energy, his mercies, come to us? He says they come to us every morning. Look what he says. Your mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Now, this is absolutely consistent with what God reveals throughout Scripture. Y'all remember, like Lamentations was written after the Exodus. So they had this bit of history I'm about to give you. They all knew that their forefathers, if you will, their ancestors, got stuck out in the wilderness, and God's teaching them in the wilderness how they relate with him. What kind of God is he? And one thing he said is he says, okay, y'all will starve to death out here unless I provide for you. And he says, I'm going to provide for you. And do y'all remember what it was called? What did he provide every day for them to eat? Manna, right? And there was also some birds involved. I don't know if y'all know the whole story you get down in, into it, which tells me this was an early version of Chick-fil-A. I'm just letting you know. Uh, I mean, you put it all together, those are chicken minis dropping from the sky all day long. Okay. So here's the deal now. When you get under the hood of that thing, remember, what, watch what God taught his people, and now he's saying it through Jeremiah. He's even going to say it again in a minute. I'm going to show you how the Bible's cohesive. So way back there, God says, now here that's, here's how this is going to work. I'm going to teach you to live the way I've designed you to live. And I want you to write it down. This is the way he's designed it. God's designed our lives to be lived one day at a time. That's how you're made to live. Because the past is gone and tomorrow hadn't happened yet. 
And so God tells his people that are worried to death about starving to death, he said, I got you, but you're going to have to learn to trust me. So what does he do? He brings all this manna. And what do the people do just like you and I would do? Since they're anxious and worried people, they go, you know what? We better get it all up off the ground and store it. And what does that say? It says, basically you're saying, in case God forgets tomorrow morning to bring the delivery truck, right? So what happens? Do you all know the story? They get up the next morning and it is spoiled. So why did God do that? Because God's teaching his people, you've got to learn to depend on me every day. I am trustworthy. I'm not going to forget to deliver. I'm going to be there for you. And he teaches them that. And now in Lamentations, because look, you may trust, when the city is great and you're the powerhouse militarily on the block like they were for so many years before the Babylonian exile, you may start going, oh, we got, we always going to be good. But, but you let things get a little crazy, you let things fall apart, and then you'll start questioning whether God will actually show up. So God has to, through Jeremiah, remind his people, hey, my mercy's new every day. Don't forget, this is how I work. You're going to have to trust me now that the city's all burned down and you may end up in another country. You're going to have to trust me that I can get you through every single day. But you will have to wake up and know that my mercy will be new and my strength will be there for you. It's kind of like this. I don't know if y'all like this kind of food, but I do. This is one of my favorite foods, sushi. How many of y'all like sushi? If you like sushi, this is a dividing line. How many of you love sushi? Just admit it, you love it. How many of you would rather eat the chair you're sitting in than try to eat that sushi? Yeah, got those people. Now, wherever you fall in line, sushi is designed a certain way. And early in our marriage, my wife does not like sushi, but she tried to fake it for a little while, okay? You know that part of your marriage where you're you know, oh, everything's great. Oh, I hate sushi, but... Chris likes it. I'm going to give this a shot. And so I remember we get sushi roll. And my wife will pull out a knife and a fork. And she'd start cutting her little sushi bite into little pieces. And I'd go, no. Man, no, no. Don't do that. And she would look at me and say, I can eat my sushi however I want. Which began a pattern in our marriage that we're still doing. I'm just kidding. Her being smarter than me, for one. And I remember us talking. And I was like, hey. Sushi is designed. They've already made it. They've done the work for you. It's bite sizes. It's already made for you. And if you can use the sticks, or you can just stick it with a fork. One more. It's bite sizes. You just put it in your mouth. Dip it in what you want, put it in your mouth. It's ready that way. And that's the way God's designed our lives. God has designed our lives already cut up into days and given you everything you need for your days. And Christians can believe that this is why you don't have to worry about tomorrow because he's going to have that energy you need and that mercy you need for that day. It was designed to be lived that way. And Jeremiah is going to teach the people of Jerusalem and their big thing they're going to have to deal with is, is not getting all caught up in their past because if, if your world just changed like theirs did overnight, you're going to get stuck thinking about how great it was. Before this happened. And Jeremiah knows that if they do that, they're going to miss living for God today. They're going to burn up their energy God gave them for today on being nostalgic for the past. So here's what we learn. For us, because I'm saying, one thing we're learning from greatest thy faithfulness, mercy new every day is God's design is to live this day. Today's a gift. If you get caught in the past, you may miss today. Living today requires remembering the past without getting stuck in it. I've loved raising my kids. 
My kids are getting older. I have a 17, a 14, and a 12-year-old. And sometimes I'll see pictures, and I miss when they were like 6 and 8 and 10. I miss that sometimes. And it's okay for me to remember and celebrate it, but if I get stuck in it, I may miss today with them. Because they're going to, one day when they're 21 and 20 and 19, I'll miss them being the age they are now. You follow me? So if you get stuck in the past, and, and there's two different ways we typically deal with the past as humans. You either have lots of shame from your past that robs you of today. And I got good news for you. Shame is not of God. He'll convict you, but the shame got taken care of on the cross, my friends. Your past does not define you, okay? You're, that's not who you are. And so that'll rob you shame. And the other thing is being overly nostalgic. Like you think your best days are behind you. That's when life was great. You're the guy at the gym that says, man, if I wouldn't have hurt my knee in high school, I probably would have played NFL football. <laughs> no. No, you wouldn't have. You know, the NFL is pretty good at finding the good athletes. They're pretty good at doing it, and then somehow they missed you, I guess. No, we get a little over nostalgic. Sometimes you think, man, when the kids were little, life was great. But if you really take a minute, you remember you were tired, you never slept, and you were broke. You know? Be honest. Don't get stuck back there. You can remember and celebrate and even learn from it. Don't get stuck there. It'll rob you of today. And that's what Jeremiah was teaching them. Jesus taught the same thing. But Jesus taught it in a future way. Jeremiah dealt more of the past. Jesus is going to teach same principle, but help us handle the future. Look at Matthew 6. And, and by the way, I want you to see how relevant to us in a modern world what Jesus says to these people. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Wow, they were worried about the same stuff we do. Cell phones are great, but they hadn't changed much in life. Verse 32. He says, the Gentiles seek after these things. Your heavenly father knows that you need them all. I want you to know why he threw that line in there. When he says Gentiles in, in this point of Christian history, in this part of the world, what he's talking about are people that are lost and away from God. And he's talking to Jewish people who believe in the living God. And he's like, guys, how can the world out there believe your God is great if you worry about the same stuff they do? If your God is so great and he wants the whole world to follow him and the world's watching you, his people, and you are just as anxious and just as scared and just as fearful and just as worried as they are about everything, then why in the world should they want to follow your God? And that hadn't changed either, folks. So Jesus says, your father knows that you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And now he gives you the principle, the Jeremiah principle from Lamentations, verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. He's going to deal with the future. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. In other words, tomorrow's coming soon enough, and it'll have plenty for you to deal with, sufficient for the day. Today is its own trouble. Same thing, that rhythm. Jesus is teaching you what Jeremiah taught, that we're made to live the day that's in front of us and that God will give you what you need for tomorrow when tomorrow comes so you can relax and use the energy he's given you for today, to parent your kids today, to love your spouse today, to live for God today. So 
what Jesus is teaching us is living today requires planning for the future, but not worrying about it. And there's the difference. How do we deal with the past? We remember it without getting stuck in it. We deal with the future by planning for it because we can be concerned, but we're not to be consumed, but not worry about it. Now, these are hard things to pull off, aren't they? Only Jesus did it perfectly. So we're not looking for perfection. We're looking for direction. We see the post sign that says, this is the way we are meant to live. Here's where we will thrive when we trust God that he will be there for us. And what I want you to understand is when we live in our past or our future, when we get stuck in the past or we worry about the future, we are using God's grace and mercy that he gave us for today. We're using the energy that was meant for tomorrow. I saw this special where Will Ferrell, hilarious guy, comedian, Will Ferrell decided that he would go on the nature show with uh, Bear Grylls. Did you ever see when Will Ferrell was on Bear Grylls' survival thing? So the... (laughs) So the first guy that comes down out of the chopper out in the wilderness is Will Ferrell. And he's got a bag of snacks that he needs for survival. And I mean, when I say the second his feet hit the ground, he started eating his snacks. Bear Grylls is still coming down. When Bear Grylls gets down there, he's like, Will Ferrell's already eating his bars and all that. And And he's like, what are you doing, man? Like, that was meant for when we need it. And, And I'm sure they planned it and all that, but it was still funny. Will Ferrell's one of those guys, I see his face, I start laughing. He's just funny. But the principle remains. He was using resources that were meant for later. And so that's what we often do. We will burn up resources for the wrong place. And worry does that. And nostalgia can do that. But God has given us today. It's kind of like this. When you wake up in the morning and you look over at your phone and it looks like this, you know you're behind the eight ball. Have you ever had that happen where the cord didn't go in all the way, something's wrong and your phone didn't charge? And since we're all connected by phones now, you realize, oh man, this is not going to be good. And all day long, you're like borrowing cords and get 8% here and 16% there. All day long, you're behind the eight ball. And so I want you to get that picture in your mind. That's, that's what worry and anxiety and thinking about shame or thinking the past was the best part of your life, that's what that will do to you for today. It sucks the energy that God wants for you to have today. God gave you today. You don't know if you're going to have tomorrow. Now, this does not mean that you don't learn from the past or celebrate it, and it does not mean that you don't plan for the future, even look forward to it, but it means we as Christians focus on today. And when we do so, we live and thrive. Paul said it like this in Philippians 4, 6 through 7. And I want you to see the cohesion of the Bible. So he writes his letter from jail to the Philippians, and he says, don't be anxious. There's the same language. Do not be anxious about anything, and he gives you what to do instead. Instead, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's what happens when you do it. So watch, you've made a trade. When you take your cares to God, instead of anxiety, you get this. You get the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So I'd say it like this. Worry about nothing and pray about everything. Worry about nothing, pray about everything. And let me give you this as we close. What if, because 
Because Jesus pointed out the Gentiles, he's saying, if we're going to be light in a dark world, we can't live like everybody else. And what if your greatest witness as a Christian, and what if our greatest witness as a church is not when we're loudest, but when we're the most relaxed? The world's full of loud and worried and anxious. But what if the world looks at us and goes, why are y'all, why are y'all so chill? Why aren't you worried about everything like we are? Why, why aren't you mad and angry on Facebook like we are? Why are you so at peace? What is that? I think maybe our light shines the brightest when we are people confident in who God is. Because when people ask, why are you not worried like we're worried? Why aren't you anxious like we're anxious? Why aren't you the way we are? You're able to go, oh, because, remember, like the children of Israel? Oh, because every day the delivery truck comes. Every day. He's never not shown up. No matter what my circumstances were. Everything around me could be burning down and God still brings me mercy and strength and grace for the day. And he's never failed. Great is thy faithfulness. So in closing today, here's my question. What is the number one thing, even if it's ridiculous, it does not have to make sense. It's your thing. What's the number one thing you're worried and anxious about today? What is it? You know right now it came in here. Don't overthink it. What's the one thing that popped into your mind? The number one thing you're worried and anxious about. I would love for you to take that to Jesus right now. I want you to verbalize it. I want you to bow your head and I want you to take that thing to Jesus and go, Lord, I am, too, I am being consumed by this and I want to give it to you. And I want to trust your character today. It's robbing me. And I want to give it to you today. I want to pray for you. Jesus, I pray is all over the room and at all of our campuses, people are giving this to you. I pray that they would literally sense the burden lifting off of them as you bear their burdens. And may we trust in your faithfulness today and your character. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.